Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Land Ministries. Welcome to our program. I'm coming to you on these Shabbat mornings prior to the fall holidays and sharing with you about the three holidays that are coming up. Last week, I shared with you about trumpets. Today, I'm going to share with you about Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And in the next couple of weeks, I'll share with you about the Feast of Tabernacles. Those are the three holidays that come in the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar, Tishri. Yom Teruah, the Day of Trumpets, is on the first. The Day of Atonement is on the tenth day. And then the Feast of Tabernacles begins on the fifteenth day and goes for eight days. This particular episode, I'm going to share with you about the Day of Atonement. This one day on the 10th of Tishri in which God calls upon us to literally fast on that day, to seek no pleasure on that day. In fact, the wording is to afflict our souls, to withdraw, become somber, to become contemplative. I'll explain some of the reasons why he commands us to do it. This is the only holiday that God gives in all of the Moedim, from Passover all the way to Tabernacles, in which he gives a warning that if you fail to do this, this particular holy day, that if you fail to do this, your life is at stake and you could be cut off. In fact, one of the things that we try to teach to understand, these are the days of repentance leading up to Yom Kippur, we say that during the 10 days from trumpets to atonement, that God's eyes are moving to and fro over the earth to determine who shall live and who shall die in the course of the next year. We consider it to be a very solemn and holy time in which we're to repent, in which we're to get right with God. And one of the things I'm going to share with you today, that atonement, uh, which in the simplest definition means at one is the actual ancient definition of the word. It's a compound word, but more in our modern English, it's more of the subject of reconciliation. When we come to the Day of Atonement, we're talking about reconciliation with God. And sometimes there you will have a series of events take place in your life, which to bring it to a conclusion, you've got to be reconciled to it. The term conciliatory is a term that we say when a person comes and they're trying to find a way to be reconciled to it, they usually come humbly, they usually come prepared to negotiate, to resolve the matter, to be on friendly terms as a result. The Messiah is said to be our atonement in the faith. We are reconciled to God and we're now on a friendly state with God, as opposed to being sinners and at odds with God, and the Messiah has done the work of redemption and brought about our reconciliation with God. So we say that the Messiah has given us atonement. He is our atonement. A lot of believers don't really understand the distinction between redemption and necessarily atonement and restoration. Those are three distinct concepts that the scripture teaches to us. We have one specific appointed time that God has called for us to keep, which is specifically focused on atonement, to be at one with him. Now, there's some very specific procedures 
that are given to us in the Torah on how to do it. I want to share with you the extensive place where this is taught. It's actually interesting that it's in Leviticus, along with the teaching of the other holidays, but there's a specific chapter, Leviticus 16, that's going to address that. Before I get to that chapter and go through the procedure, because it will be a procedure done in the temple, let me just say, since we don't have the temple and we don't have the priesthood to be able to carry this out, what then is our responsibility with regard to the Day of Atonement? Well, to the extent that we fast that full 24 hours, to the extent that we seek reconciliation with God, we think of, have we sinned? Are we at odds with God? Let's be reconciled to God. Let's cast away our sins uh, from ourselves. And there's a simple little custom uh, that really illustrates this, and it's called Tashlik. Tashlik, for those who are observing Yom Kippur, they will do it any time between trumpets and Yom Kippur. They will either take breadcrumbs or they'll take pebbles or they'll take little small little things. And they'll go to a body of water. Could be a creek, could be a river, could be a lake. They go before the Lord, they humble themselves before the Lord, and they designate, if you will, this pebble. And they say, this pebble represents, and I'll give you an example, this pebble represents all my sins, God, that came as a result of my ego, that my ego was not appropriate. I'm going to take those sins and I'm going to cast them away from me. I want you to remove those from me, Lord. I don't want any more to do with it. As a result of casting off those things, what you're left with is your relationship with God without those things. So you become reconciled to the Lord. It's a very simple little custom. I personally, I do it on Yom Kippur. Since I'm fasting all day and I'm not doing anything of any pleasure, there will become a point in that day where I'll gather up some pebbles, I'll go to a body of water, and I'll carry out this little custom. It's a way to think and consider how to do that. Now, let me take you to how Yom Kippur is observed in the temple, because I'm sure you're familiar with some of this, but this is a very interesting procedure that God calls for. Leviticus chapter 16, beginning at verse 1, it reads as follows. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. And Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic. The linen undergarments shall be next to his body. He shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. He shall take the two goats, present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent to meeting, and Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord felled and make it 
a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement on it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a firepan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, otherwise he will die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out. Then he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. And with his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it, and from the impurities of the sons of Israel consecrate it. And when he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel, all their transgressions in regard to their sins, and they shall lay them on the head of the goat, send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. Goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting, and take off the linen garments which he had put on, and which he had into the holy place, and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place, and put on his clothes, and come forth, and offer his burnt offering, and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. Then he shall offer up in smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who released the goat as a scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. The bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, which blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside of the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterwards he shall come into the camp. This shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns amongst you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you and you will be clean from all of your sins before the Lord. 
It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as a priest in his father's house shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the rest of the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. Now, I wanted to read the whole portion to you, the instruction, as you can tell. There's a lot of specific instructions and a lot of steps that take place. So let me summarize to you essentially what would take place. And let me add a couple of other things to this that gives a little more of a picture to what takes place. So the Day of Atonement comes, and the duty of the Day of Atonement primarily falls upon the high priest. The high priest is essentially going to perform a procedure that will take into account basically all of the sins of omission that has been done by Israel and by the leadership. Sins of commission, where a person willfully and defiantly sins, there's a complete another set of sacrifices that is done for that. If you sin against a man, you go and you take the sacrifice of rhythm. These particular procedures, these particular sacrifices are for the sins of ignorance you failed to do that which was God's standard. And so we're going to cover them for the whole nation at one moment on one day. Now, it's interesting how it's going to set up. First of all, we got to have the high priest himself. He's got to make atonement. Once his atonement is complete, now he can render atonement then for the rest of the temple system, for the altar, for the tent of meeting. He can then offer atonement for the other people. And so there's a bull and a goat that he has to sacrifice, and he's got to take that blood into the holy place, the holy of holies, where the mercy seat is at, directly in front of it, which is on the east side, as it said. He's got to go in there, and he's got to sprinkle some of that blood with his finger. Basically, he would dip it in, he would flick his finger like this, and he has to do it seven times, present the blood. And he casts it toward the Ark of the Covenant. Some will go on the mercy seat, some will go there on the front, some of it will fall directly before. He will then also have to make a procedure where he goes in with a big handful of incense in his fire pan with the coals that came off the fire altar in the temple. And we go in and he will dump those, that incense on, and make a very great cloud of incense and the fragrance that is there. One of the understandings is that he cannot look directly where God is sitting at the mercy seat, but he can make a cloud that protects him. By the way, there was great fear and trepidation about the high priest going in there every year. In fact, one of the safety procedures that it doesn't describe here, but was the tradition, they used to actually tie a rope, a line onto the ankle of the high priest. When he would go in there, and of course the bells on the bottom of his garment would ring whenever he was walking and moving, if all of a sudden everything got very still and very quiet and he wasn't responding to answers and he'd been in there for a long time, they thought maybe he died, thought maybe he'd done something against the Lord coming into his presence. And they literally had the rope 
so that they could drag his body back out of there in case he died. Well, nobody ever died in this procedure, but it goes to show you the level of tension and fear that was associated with this feast and how to perform it. Now, there's two other goats that was an important component of the observance of Yom Kippur in the temple. They would take two goats and the high priest would stand between them. When it says that they would cast lots, they actually had formed this in the temple in Jerusalem. They actually had these like two little paddles and they sat in a box and they both looked identical. And when you pulled and what you would do is you'd grab those paddles and you'd stand and you would hold them there over the goat. Now, one of them said Azel. The other one said Azazel. Azel meant joined to the Lord. Azazel meant completely removed from the Lord. The Azel goat, and they would show them, that is the goat that is going to be slain in the temple. That's the one that the blood will be presented to the mercy seat on behalf of all of Israel for a sin offering. The other one, on the other hand, now was kept. He was alive. He would not be slain in the temple. So once the first goat had been offered and had been served there in the Holy of Holies, they would come out and they would take this live goat. And the high priest would put his hands on top of the goat and he would confess all the sins of Israel, all the sins of omission, all the th defilements that had been, all the things we didn't know we had done, but God knew about. And he would put the burden of those sins on that goat. That goat then would be led out of the temple as it left the court of Israel. It would actually be taken across there in Jerusalem, across the priestly bridge over to the Mount of Olives. So it would be from the Temple Mount to the Mount of Olives. They would then hand the goat to what was called a man in readiness or a fit man. This man now would lead that goat out into the wilderness. Let me tell you one other thing that they did in the temple system with regard to this goat. They would take a long piece of red yarn and they would cut it and they'd pick a piece of the yarn, they would tie it to the door of the temple. They would take that other piece of red yarn, they would tie it to the horn of this goat, this escaping goat, we call scapegoat. And they would take it out to the fit man. Now this fit man, for the most part, we believe, are you ready for this? Was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. Because he's gonna go on a journey leading this goat away than longer than what is called a Sabbath day journey for a Jew. He's gonna walk a distance into the wilderness that's farther than what the Jews in the temple in Jerusalem were permitted to walk. And he would walk out this street and walk to the east of the temple. That is the Judean wilderness. There's a particular mountain out there that he would go toward the Dead Sea, toward Jericho region and so forth. And that mountain is actually called, are you ready for this? Tel Kippah. This is a Kippah. What does it mean? Atonement. When a Jew wears this, he says, my atonement comes from God. Kippah is the same thing as Kippur. 
It's just the hat part. And he would take him to a mountain called Tel Kippah. It's a rounded off mountain. It looks like a kippah. And he would let the goat go. It would be released into the wilderness. Now, they had pre-set up priests all along this journey, and they had a banner. And the idea was that each one staged to it could see the next one, and he could see the one behind him. Couldn't see all the way to the temple, but as you stationed these 10 priests out, they could see one another. So the idea was at the moment that the goat is released way out in the wilderness, the one priest who's observing it, he would raise his banner. Now the next priest sees the banner raised, he raises his banner. The next one raises his banner. And they would send a signal back to the temple trying to match the very moment in the temple that the goat's being released. So it's like these flags would signal. And in real time, they would know when the goat is released. And at that moment, they would turn and look at the yarn that was tied to the door. And this is the temple, one of the miracles of the temple, that yarn would suddenly be white and would indicate to them that the goat had been released and had been set gone. Now, this picture of the goat taking out, being taken, bearing the sins of the nation, and then suddenly released. Actually, there's a legend that the goat was actually pushed off a cliff and died. So they say that it died, but it died out the wilderness, or they thought it died. But that's legend. The truth is, it would simply be released. Then in the temple, they knew the goat had been released. And at that point, the understanding was, with all the people in Jerusalem and all around the temple, that God had accepted and that all of their sins had been removed, and therefore they had atonement. They had been made one with God. They were now on friendly relations with God. There was nothing blocking their relationship with God. It was done once a year for the whole nation. Now, the picture for us as believers in the Messiah, we see certain parallels that ties into the Messiah. Number one, the Messiah is our scapegoat. He's the one that was innocent. You know, this goat that gets these sins put on him, he's innocent. He didn't do anything. Our sins have been placed upon the Messiah. He has taken them outside of the city. And Yeshua was taken out of the temple, taken over to, we believe, the Mount of Olives. And there he was crucified. He bore our sins. He took them away from the people, away from the temple, and he was crucified there. So that is a very powerful picture with regard to how the Messiah is our scapegoat. But I want to remind you that goat actually didn't die. There's a legend that it died. And oh, by the way, when Yeshua went out and bore our sins and was crucified, he died and he was buried. But I got news for you. He's still alive. The Messiah came out of the grave. People think he died, but he's not dead anymore. He is alive. And there's a day coming when they're going to find out how alive he is. That's going to be the other part of the fulfillment of what we call the Day of Atonement. You see, there's another passage that Moses also gave in the Torah, 
that had to do with the Day of Atonement. It wasn't from chapter 16, where he talks about another aspect of what the Day of Atonement is about. Uh, chapter 30, Exodus 30, verse 10. You remember when he makes atonement for the temple system and so forth? It says, chapter 30, verse 10, it says, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. Okay, we're talking about Yom Kippur. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering and of atonement once a year throughout their generations. It is most holy to the Lord. All right, he has now set the stage for how this is all going to work this once-a-year thing that he's talking about. And then all of a sudden, everything shifts. It turns out, according to the prophets, there is a single day that is coming into our future, which is like the Day of Atonement. This one time, we're going to do this one thing, and specifically, the other prophets, they call this the Day of the Lord. The day when God is going to be reconciled to the whole world. Now, we saw the procedure for atonement and reconciliation with Israel with God. But the whole world is also at odds with God. God has planned there's going to be a day when everybody is going to be reconciled to me. Now, let me go ahead and just tell you very quickly, essentially what God is going to do. He's going to end the problem of the people who are opposed to him. He's going to end it by judging the whole world. That's how you end the problem. And there's a day coming when God is going to fulfill the Day of Atonement, and it's called the Day of the Lord. Now, you may have heard that expression before, but maybe you hadn't heard it's associated with the Day of Atonement. I'm going to go ahead and read to you just a little bit some where the prophets talk about this day of the Lord, and you're going to find out that the language they use is when God makes atonement with the world, when he becomes reconciled to the world. Now, a lot of people, when they think about the second coming, they think about God coming back and establishing his kingdom. I find all different kinds of views about exactly what it's supposed to happen. Most people, they focus on, quote, the rapture. Some will talk about the great tribulation that leads up to the resurrection and the rapture, but very few really focus in on what we call the day of the Lord, the day of when God is reconciled to the whole world. The sequence of events is like the pattern of the fall feast. That trumpets, the day of trumpets, where we learn the sound of the trumpet, one of the things we're supposed to learn is the sound of the trumpet of the resurrection, so that when we hear that trumpet blast, we'll know, oh, this is the resurrection. The saints are being raised. They're being joined with the Lord. Those who are still alive are caught up with them. People call the rapture. There's the sounding of the trumpet. But there's another trumpet blast that we also are told about from trumpets, and that is the day of the Lord. By the way, on the day of atonement, in the observance, not only do we have the blowing of trumpets on the day of trumpets, we also blow this trumpet on the day of atonement. But the trumpet blast that's on here is the trumpet blast of God's judgment on the whole world. We're taught that in observing the Day of the Trumpets, but it's actually blown on this. One of the arguments that goes on about the teaching of this, is that the last trumpet or is the last trumpet the one up at trumpets? But I can assure you whether it's the last trumpet or not, this is the last one for the world. 
that comes on the Day of Atonement. God basically says that in that day, he is truly going to judge the world. Now, I want to read some of the language to you because there's a lot of people that just don't quite realize how serious God is about this Day of Atonement business. I've been trying to share with you as believers, we need to take this very seriously. I mean, God specifically says, do no pleasure on that day. You afflict your souls. You humble yourself. Why would God give us that commandment? It's to prepare us for the day of the Lord. Now, stick with me for a moment. Let's say that you're there at the end of the ages, and we have the trumpet of the resurrection. Yea, God, we all get gathered up to the Lord. We're up there with the Lord. We're in the clouds. Who's left on the earth? Sinners. What's God getting ready to do? Judge them. What are we going to be doing? I can assure you, we will not be cheering. We will be humbling our souls. We will be quiet. There is nothing to rejoice about when God has to judge the world. There's nothing to cheer about. We can cheer when he establishes his kingdom. We can cheer for our salvation. But there's nothing to cheer about when we have to see mankind being judged by an almighty God because they will not obey him. This is when God reconciles himself to the world and brings an end to sinners in the world. It is absolute and it is complete. Now, I need to emphasize that particular part. Let me read to you what some of the prophets have said about this day. Let me take you to Isaiah. You'll find this very interesting. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, lift up a standard on the bare hill, raise your voice to them, wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my concentrated ones, I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exulting ones, to execute my anger. A sound of tumult on the mountains, like that of many people. A sound of uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons. The Lord in his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp. Every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains of anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces of flame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it arises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man more scarce than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Let me stop for a moment and tell you what he just said. When Solomon had his famous Solomon gold mines, 
he used to send ships out and there were gold mines and they would bring vast amounts of gold back to King Solomon. It was used to build a temple and all kinds of things. There was a legend that Solomon's gold mines were so rich and so great that they had found what is called a golden wedge of Ophir. They had found a whole gold bar, solid, pure gold, a bar of it. That's a legend that they were just trying to examine how great the gold was, and it was called the gold of Ophir. The gold of Ophir was a legend. It didn't really exist. Ophir was the name of Solomon's gold mines. He said, I'm going to make man more scarce than pure gold, and I'm going to make mankind more scarce than the gold of Ophir. We're going to make all of mankind more scarce than a legend. Now, that means absolute 100% extermination of every mortal man on the day of the earth at the day of the Lord. They are not mincing words that the judgment of God will be absolute and complete. Verse 13 goes on to say, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. That's pretty severe. That's what Isaiah the prophet had to say about the day of the Lord. And by the way, the day of atonement, the reason why we're supposed to be humbling ourselves is because that's what's going to be happening in the future day of atonement when the Lord comes back. Let me show you what, we have a whole prophet. One of the, one of the prophets that wrote one of the books, his whole book is dedicated to the day of the Lord. It's a prophet you don't hear very often. He's called the prophet Zephaniah. How many teachings have you ever heard from the prophet Zephaniah? Not Zechariah, Zephaniah. Let me read to you just for a moment from Zephaniah chapter 1. There's only a couple of chapters in the book. All he does is talk about the day of the Lord. Let me read to you what he says in Zephaniah 1, beginning at verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. And I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be a sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out the silver will be cut off. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses, but not inhabit them and plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. He starts off and this, by the way, the mortar that he's mentioned here, that's the area where the merchants work in the city. He's talking about in Jerusalem. He's talking about all the merchants, all the people that do things for profit. Let me tell you what a fellow who's in business tends to do when we start talking about, say, the coming of the Lord. 
they have a tendency to say things like, hey, the Lord's going to do whatever he's going to do. I'm not concerned about it. And by the way, we have a lot of people in the world today, they're going about their lives, they're proceeding on down, they're working on their retirement, they're, they've got other plans, they've got family and so forth, they're going on. And whenever the subject about the coming of the Lord comes up, they say, oh, yeah, yawn, big deal. So what? They don't pay attention to it. They don't take it serious. They don't even, for a moment, even consider it. Uh, the Lord's going to do whatever he wants to do, whether he does good or evil. Who, who knows? What, who cares? God specifically calls out that attitude for the day of the Lord and says, guess what I'm going to do with people who have that attitude? You will cry out like you've never cried out before. You will suddenly discover literally in one day the incredible mistake you have made with your entire life. That's what God describes as the day of the Lord. He goes on further. This gets even more interesting. Zephaniah, beginning at verse 14, says this. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. How more can you express this? I believe that Isaiah was correct when he prophesied this. I believe Zephaniah He's got a whole book dedicated to this. Yet, here today, when we talk about the end times, very few people talk about the day of the Lord that's coming. Well, I think there's a reason why. Nobody wants to hear doom and gloom. And by the way, the day of the Lord is definitely doom and gloom. And it says right there, it's a day of doom and a day of gloom. But they, well, we want to hear positive things. We don't want to hear this. You better hear some of this. And you better pay attention to it, and you better believe that God is serious about this. No fooling. He's not kidding around. Now, thank goodness for us. We already have our atonement through Yeshua the Messiah. Thank goodness. We get to hear the trumpet blast before the day of the Lord, and we get to be raised. We get to be with the Lord. We're not on the surface of the earth when this hits. When this hits on the surface of the earth, God is going to move through this place like lightning strikes and lightning bolts. Now, you would think that the book of Revelation might have something to say about the day of the Lord. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it has a lot to say about it. In fact, let me take you to the book of Revelation, and let me explain to you one of the clues on how to properly translate all of the judgments. If you do a comparison between the sixth seal, and there's seven seals in the book of Revelation, the seventh trump, and there's seven trumps in the book of Revelation, and the seventh plague, and there's seven plagues in the book of Revelation, you'll find out that the sixth seal, seventh trump, and seventh plague, they're describing exactly the same thing. They're describing the day of the Lord. Let me tell you to this, take you to the sixth seal. Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. That's the language of the day of the Lord given by the prophets. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and hill was moved out of their places. Can you imagine an earthquake on the earth in which it shakes every mountain and every ocean, and he's literally transforming the surface of the earth? Would you like to be on the earth the day that God decides to make the sea go away and to make the earth predominantly a physical land service and lower every mountain and raise up every valley. Would you like to be standing on the earth for that earthquake? Because we're talking about an earthquake that would have to be somewhere in the magnitude of about magnitude 12. Most of the big earthquakes we hear about there, maybe sixes or eights or possibly even a nine. How'd you like to be on the earth when there's one that's a Richter scale of 12? That's the day of the Lord. That's what he's describing here. Complete upheaval of the earth. Verse 15. Then kings of the earth and great men and commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They're trying to find a safe place on the surface of the earth. And verse 16. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of God. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who's able to stand? The day of the Lord begins with a giant earthquake. An earthquake in which people are trying to find some way to take cover, and then suddenly realizing it's Almighty God coming back. They're actually begging for them to be crushed by the rocks and die in the earthquake so they don't have to face the Lord when he comes back. And there's a very interesting question. For who is able to stand on that day? Can I give you a quick answer on that one? You and I. You and I will be standing on the day of the Lord. We will be observing and watching. God judge the whole world. We'll have these seats and these, this place will be in the clouds. We're with the Lord in the clouds. and We watch and restructure the entire surface of the earth. Let's read the seventh trumpet. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 18. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and who are fear your name, the small and the great, to destroy those who destroy the earth. 
The temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. The ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. One of the things that happens in the great tribulation is there's going to be, and it's one of the trumpet judgments, there's going to be an asteroid or a comet, some sort of heavenly body that's going to strike the earth during the three and a half year great tribulation. It's going to open an abyss in the earth and it says it's going to bring forth debris into the atmosphere that will darken the sun, the moon, and the stars. And all this debris is going to go up into the atmosphere and block. Well, whatever goes up has got to come down. And all that dirt and debris and ash that's up there, it's going to collect in the atmosphere, frozen, gets froze together, and suddenly becomes hailstones. And it's got to come down one of these days. Well, guess what? It comes down on the day of the Lord. It precipitates down in the heavens. It's the same time a great earthquake has taken place. Here comes these hailstones down. Now picture this. There's a single man standing on the earth. The great earthquake is taking place. The ground is shaking every which way. You can't walk anywhere. You can't go anywhere. And by the way, 100-pound hailstones now start coming down from the heavens. A hailstone this size can kill you if it hits you. Can you imagine what 100-pound hailstones are going to do to the surface of the earth and to people that are there? It'll destroy everything that is here. It'll wipe out concrete buildings like you can't believe. They'll be coming down at terminal velocity, sometimes assisted by the wind blowing even faster, and just like heavy artillery is hitting everywhere. That's what the seventh trump says. Let's look at the seventh plague, see what it says. Revelation 16 and verse 17 says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a loud voice came out of the temple, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds of peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. And when this gets done, God is going to be reconciled to the world. There won't be any more problem with him and sinners, because the sinners will not exist anymore. It'll just be us, the redeemed, his angels, and the Lord. And the whole world belongs to him again. And we get to re-inhabit the world. And by the way, the next step after that, which we're going to talk about in our next episode, we're going to talk about the Feast of Tabernacles, because he will touch his toe down to the Mount of Olives. And guess what we do? We join him and we celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, the season of joy. It's the first event of the Messianic Kingdom. It comes five days after the day of the Lord. 
It is when God is reconciled to the world. Now, I want to clarify one other thing, just as we had to clarify the difference between redemption and atonement. Let's talk about the difference between judgment and God's wrath. God's wrath is reserved with the day of the Lord. Anything that happens before that is one of God's judgments. So, for example, the other seal judgments, the other trumpet judgments, the other plague judgments, those are judgments. We see those. But it's only in the sixth seal, the seventh trump, and the seventh plague, do you hear about God's wrath. And it's the same wrath that's described by the other prophets, like, like Isaiah, like Zephaniah. Moses does it too. And oh, by the way, Yeshua speaks of it too. And in fact, the last verse I want to share with you is what Yeshua said, that if you believe in him, but you don't obey him, then God's wrath is waiting for you. The day of the Lord is waiting for mankind. Mankind's going to go through it. My recommendation is that you prepare for the day of his wrath by seeking out the salvation and the obedience of following Yeshua, the Messiah. That is the one item that will get you past the day of the Lord. Otherwise, the day of the Lord is waiting for you. That's our teaching for this week. Next week, I'm going to begin to share with you the third and final fall feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, the season of our joy. I look forward to doing that with you. Shabbat shalom to all of you.